Please turn this morning in your copies of God's Word to 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians and the third chapter. We'll be looking today at 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. But before we look at that text, I want to remind you that when we began this year, we began on the note of the necessity of being awake as Christians. Being awake as Christians. And we took for our text Romans chapter 13, and what Paul says to the believers there in Rome, that knowing these things, he says, do this knowing the time. That now it is high time that we awake from our sleep, for now our salvation is nearer than when it first appeared or when we first believed. And brethren, I can say to you that having preached that at the very outset of the beginning of this year, that those words are even truer today than they were three months ago. Now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed, and it's nearer than when we even looked at that text a few months ago. So I want to ask you a question. I've been asking this question pretty consistently, but I want to ask it to you again. How are we doing? Are you awake? Are you stirred up? Are you zealous? Are you vigilant? Are you endeavoring to walk with God with an upright conscience? Are you seeking Him in prayer? Are you seeking Him through His Word? How are we doing? As we've progressed through the year, my conscious aim in standing here in every sermon that I have preached thus far has been to stimulate you by way of reminding you of what is true about you. Reminding you of those things that we find in the Scripture. We've looked again at the beautiful doctrines of justification and reconciliation and peace with God and sanctification and the fact that we've been made to stand uprightly in this wonderful sphere of grace. And all of those things that I've been drawing your attention to and bringing you back to the Scriptures to see again are to the end that we might put on the Lord Jesus Christ. That we might be alert. That we might be thoughtful. That we might be watchful. We're not finished. Our race is not finished, brethren. Our battle is not done. And we can ill afford to become a people that are moved, or not moved rather, because of apathy. And therefore our cogitation, our bringing our minds before the Word of God again and again so that we might 
see those things, these glorious truths that God has given to us, and so that in the seeing of them, in the processing of them, in the thinking upon them, we might be stirred up, and in that cogitation, and then in that assimilation of taking these things to ourselves, these vital doctrines of our salvation, that also, brethren, is not done. And there's a sense that in this world, they never will be. We, we never will be done. Stirring over in our minds again these wonderful truths and then seeking by faith to take them and to assimilate them and to put on the Lord Jesus Christ and to stir ourselves up that we might be awake, that we might be watchful, that we might be fighting, that we might be diligent. In this world, that fight never ends. We must always be building ourselves up upon our most holy faith. That's the charge given to us by Jude. Praying always, he says, in the Holy Spirit. Keeping yourselves in the love of God. Looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. And what that means is that we must daily, daily be bringing ourselves before truth and reigniting the embers within our hearts again and again. Our hearts, brethren, our hearts are so prone to wonder. They're so prone to sleep. They're so prone to coldness like the driven snow that in a night, in a night's watch, we can lay down and go to bed warm and wake up the next morning cold. Our hearts are so prone to this. And oh, how it's my prayer, it's my earnest desire that we as the, Lord, the Lord's people would be diligent in thinking and stirring and, and blowing upon those embers that the fires might continue to burn within us always and that we might not grow tired, we not, might not grow sleepy we might not be found to be on that great day those that are sleeping when the bridegroom comes. And so we've been looking. That's my aim. We've been looking at all of these things. And I want to shift slightly this morning, but not entirely. I want to talk about another doctrine. Not in line with those things that Paul has mentioned in Romans as he writes to the Romans, but something that we find here in 1 Corinthians, a doctrine that I would say must be emphatically kept always burning. And brethren, that's the doctrine of the church. So while I'm shifting slightly away from doctrines of soteriology and salvation, I'm not shifting in the sense that this is the doctrine of the church. Ecclesiology is something that is given to us. The truths that are given to us in the scripture about the church are given to us that we might be a people who are always awake. And therefore we must labor to maintain a high and a right regard for her, the church, as she finds her expression especially in local visible congregations, which is precisely what Paul is driving at here in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 when he says to them in verse 16, Do you not know 
Do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? If anyone destroys or defiles the temple of God, God will destroy him. For the temple of God is holy, which temple you are. And when he says that to these believers, he's not speaking about individuals here. Individual Christians. Neither is he speaking about what we would call the church universal. But Paul's words here are actually given in connection to this local, visible expression of Christ's body there in Corinth. He opens this letter by calling them this. He says, verse 2, To the church of God, which is at Corinth. There is a church. There is an ecclesia. A group of people who have been called out of this world by God unto the Lord Jesus Christ and unto one another. And the local visible expression of that can be found there in Corinth and it is called the church of God which is at Corinth. To those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints with all who in every place call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both theirs and ours. And as Paul writes, continues to write to them, here in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, it's no different. He's still addressing to those, those who are at Corinth, the church that is at Corinth, when he says to them, do you not know? They're in Corinth. And I say to you this morning, brethren, do you not know here in Bluefield that you are the temple of God? That the Spirit of God dwells in you. That you, as the temple of God, are holy. Well, that's what I want us to focus on today. Those two verses and the importance of those two verses. And the first thing that I want you to notice here in 1 Corinthians 3, verses 16 and 17, is the underlying assumption of Paul's language. He says to them, Do you not know? Or the old King James, Know ye not? Know ye not? It's an emphatic expression. And it's a unique way in which Paul chose to communicate, particularly with these people there in Corinth. The language that he uses in saying, Do you not know? Or know ye not? is almost entirely exclusive to this letter. He uses that kind of language five other places, but he actually uses it ten more times in this letter here. The same question addressing various matters concerning this particular congregation. And in each instance, the question as he, as he writes it, as he says it, is rhetorical. And it's set forth not so much as a teaching device. He's not saying, do you not know, so now I want to teach you. That's not his point. But he's saying it as a rhetorical device, as a way to command their attention, as a way to refresh their memory. And in asking the question, there's the expectation that the Corinthians will answer when he says, do you not know, that they will answer affirmatively. And that they will answer with deep conviction. In other words, when he says, know ye not, or do you not know, 
he's assuming by the use of that rhetorical device that this is something that they do know. So that at the very mention of this wonderful reality regarding the true nature of what they were together in Christ as a true church of Christ, when he says to them, do you not know at the very mention of that Do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? That you are the church of God? That in hearing that and asking that question, that their hearts would be both smitten by the power of God falling upon them in the reality. We are the temple of God. And in the very asking of it, their hearts would be stirred and reignited at the remembrance of these things. We, we are the temple of God. We are the temple of God. It's as if he said by these words to these believers, do you not know? Know ye not? Look again. Dear saint, dear church, look again at what God has so marvelously done. Look again at how He has assembled us together upon the rock-solid and singular foundation of the Lord Jesus Christ. Look again at what I just wrote to you, that it was when you were called by Him, that it was not many wise, that it was not many among you who were called by Him that were mighty in stature, that it was not many among you that were called by Him who were noble, What did He call when He called you unto Himself? Look again. He called the foolish things of this world. He called out the weak things of this world. He called out the base things of this world. Those things, Paul says, which are not. When He passed by you, and when He saw you, as the prophet Ezekiel said, struggling, wallowing in your own filth, in your own uncleanness, in your own blood, when God Almighty passed by you and saw you struggling in your own blood, He said to you in your blood, Live! Live! And when He said to you in your own blood, when you were wallowing in the mire and the muck of your own sin, when He looked at you and He said to you, Live! Oh, it's all of mercy. And it's all of pity. And it's all of grace. And it's all of power, of the almighty power of God. And it's as if Paul is saying to them here, Look again, dear Corinthians, at these things. He's taken all of this All that we are as children of wrath. And He's come to us in mercy, in pity, in power. And He's raised us up and He's given us newness of life. And He's united us to the Lord Jesus Christ. Who has now become to us our wisdom. What wisdom do we have but the wisdom of the Lord Jesus Christ? He's become unto us our righteousness. What righteousness do we have? but the righteousness that comes by that one who suffered and died, the just one in place of the unjust. He's become to us our sanctification. By Him we have been made to differ. 
By Him we have been separated. By Him we have been rescued from this present evil age. And He has become to us our redemption. And He has united us in this, not only to Him who has become our wisdom, our righteousness, our sanctification, and our redemption, but in so doing, He's united us to one another by the bonds of Christ's shed blood. And in so doing, He alone has made us a temple. In so doing, He alone has made us to be suited as a place wherein He may draw near in all of His glorious presence that He might condescend in power and that He might come and that He might walk in our midst. We are the temple of God. The Spirit of God dwelling in us so that He who glories, let Him glory in that. Let Him glory in that. Now, you see why this was so important for these deeply divided and I would say morally decadent, boastful Corinthians. That's who he's writing to. He's writing to a people that were incredibly boastful. He's writing to a people that were incredibly arrogant. He's writing to a people because of their boastfulness and their arrogance were divided. And he's writing to a people who were being drawn away into moral decay and decline and decadence. That was the temptation. That was the peculiar temptation for these people. That's who he's writing to when he says to them, Do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? Do you see why something like this is so vital for people like that? They did know it. They did know it. That's the whole point of the question. And because he asked the question the way that he asked it, they were therefore made to bring it back into view. To remember it. Which goes back to what I said at the very outset of this sermon. And that is that brethren, what I want more for us than anything else is that we would remember who we are in the Lord Jesus Christ. But that's not the only reason that he asked this rhetorical question here. It's not just to remind them of who they are. But the question assumes that this is something that they ought to be endeavoring to keep before them and to never let it slip from their sights. Do you not know? In other words, why would you, why would you forget this? Why would you... Why would you let this slip from your mind with such a grand and a glorious truth having already been revealed to you that you are the temple of God, that you are the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, that you, by the grace of God, have been rescued and pulled out of this world and brought into fellowship with Christ and brought into fellowship with one another and constructed in such a way that you are called the temple of God with such a grand and a glorious truth why would you ever let it escape from your minds why would you substitute it with anything else is there anything else that's grander 
Is there anything else that's of more vital importance than this reality? You are the temple of God and the Spirit of God dwells in you. Why would you slight it? Why would you ever think to degrade it? Even worse, as he says here in verse 17, and it seems that many were doing this or possibly doing this, why would you destroy it? Why would you defile it? And there are many ways in which it can be defiled. There are many ways in which it can be destroyed. We'll look at some of them this afternoon. But brethren, when we have a low view of the church, when we have a low view of who we are in Christ, that's a destroying. That's a defiling. We'll open that up a little bit later. My point simply here is this. The question, do you not know, is aimed at not only bringing to their remembrance, but so stirring them up that they might keep this reality before them and never let it slip from their sight. In other words, it's meant to be a sharp peg driven well into the conscience for the permanent fastening of these things to their memory and to their hearts. Further, another assumption Paul makes in this searching question, do you not know, is that this will, by the very asking of the question, not only be a means of their keeping this reality before them at all times, but that to the end that it will be a controlling factor unto them. Do you not know? Corinthians, divided Corinthians, boastful Corinthians, arrogant Corinthians, decadent Corinthians, do you not know that you are the temple of God? You see what I'm saying? That in the very asking of this question, that what is meant by it is that we would remember, that we would never lose sight of it, And that in keeping it before us, that it would be a controlling factor to us. That it would govern all of our activities. That the the reality that you are the temple of God would govern all of your activities. Private and public. Their church government. Their worship their interactions and service to one another, that it would all be continuously conducted under this banner. We are the temple of God. God's Spirit dwells in us. You see why that question is so important. Do you not know? You do know. But you've lost sight of it, Corinthians. And I don't want you to lose sight of it. Neither do I want you to just know it. But I want it to come upon you in such power that you would be stirred up by it. That all of your relations, all of your activities, both here presently in the congregation of the Lord's people and then outside of the congregation of the Lord's people, all of those activities would come under this great banner. We are the temple of God and therefore it would govern our thinking, govern our doing, govern our hearts at all times. Now then, having seen something of what is contained in the question pertaining to what these Corinthians and we, brethren, know. 
And having seen that this knowledge is to be kept before them at all times, so much so that it has a very real and an ongoing controlling effect upon their life together as a church. Let me ask you this, first of all. Does it have a real and ongoing effect upon our hearts? Do we know, brethren, what we are? I just lay that at our feet that we might think about it, that we might ponder it, but then it behooves us to ask, okay, well, what exactly is the meaning? What is it exactly that Paul is assuming that they knew and that we should know regarding this temple? What is it exactly that we should know that should be carried about in our thinking and in our doing at all times? And I think that if we spent a significant amount of time in this text, there could be many things that could be brought out. But I want to limit our focus to that which I believe is most central and dominant to the text before us now. And so I have three particular things that he assumes that they know. And three particular things that we, brethren, should know. And that should be a controlling factor in our lives. And the first thing is this. That there is something distinctly unique about the church. And that you cannot be what you are meant to be as a saint saved by the Lord Jesus Christ, apart from one another. That's implicit in this text. The two, salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ and the church bound together are inextricably attached and linked. One writer put it this way, God's gathering of His people... The church lies at the heart of our identity as Christians. God's gathering of His people lies at the heart of our identity as Christians. He says to them here, Do you not know that you all are the temple of God? And then He says to them in verse 17... For the temple of God is holy, which temple ye, or you all, are. And there's an emphasis there on the words, you all, the plural word there, you all, are. What he's saying is that brethren... What we ought to recognize, what we need to know, what we need to be careful to never forget, and what we need to make sure is a controlling factor in our lives, is that we are attached to one another. That when you are saved by the Lord Jesus Christ, you are not just saved individually to walk alone. That it is part and parcel to salvation. You are part of His church. Paul says it this way later on, 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 13, For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body. In other words, those who have been baptized into Christ, not water, baptism, baptism by the Holy Spirit, salvation. Those who are baptized by the Spirit are baptized into this body which is called His church. Or the 
language that's used early on in the life of the church after Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, verse 47. I find this to be so interesting because of the way that it attaches salvation to the church. Listen, and to the local church, by the way, there in Acts 2, 47. Notice what he says. You can turn there with me if you like. Acts 2, 47. Verse 46, So continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And then notice his language, the way that it's put. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. And what's implied by that language is that those who are being daily saved were being added to the church. That there was not that there was not something separate happening, but that there was something simultaneously happening in the salvation of sinners being brought in to the congregation of the people of God. And Paul says to these Corinthians here, you know this. You know this. You all Right there in Corinth, you all right here in Bluefield are the temple of God. You all. You know that the temple of God is no longer a building constructed of brick and of mortar. You know that the temple is no longer a place that's inaccessible to the people of God. But you know that now the temple is of such a nature that it's not only accessible to the people of God, but it's actually constructed of those individual members of Christ. You all being the temple of God, being built upon the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the only foundation and brought together by Him for the express purpose of being the dwelling place of God Himself. You all. And you cannot be this in any other way. You cannot be what God has intended you to be as a Christian. You cannot be what God has intended you to be as a saint. You cannot be what God has intended you to be as being separated from the world apart from the church, apart from this temple, apart from one another. You cannot. You may be a Christian, but brethren... We will never be all that we should be apart from this temple of God. Woven into the very fabric of our calling is an irrevocable interdependence upon one another. Charles Hodge put it this way, that we, the church, are intimately and organically united as partaking of the same life. Do you partake of the life of the Lord Jesus Christ, dear saint? Well, the believer next to you partakes of the very same life. And I partake of the very same life. And we all have been baptized together into one body. And the whole scheme of redemption, the whole purpose of redemption, is not that we should live individual lives unto the Lord Jesus Christ, but in our individual walking with the Lord Jesus Christ, that we would walk together as well. It's so vital. Especially in our day. You realize that personal preferences or even your personal walk with God is not the ultimate end or the highest aim of your salvation? When you hear that kind of language, what does it do in your heart? Do you think, that doesn't sound right? 
Let me tell you emphatically, if you go back through not only the Scriptures and everything that's written in all of the letters to the New Testament churches, all the instruction is given to the churches about their life in Christ. But then if you go back through church history and you look at the Reformation, you can go pull up the Helvetic Confession, the, the Belgic Confession, the Westminster Confession. You can look at what John Owen had to say. You can look at what John Calvin had to say. You can look at all the Reformers, all the church fathers, Augustine, Cyprian. They'll say the same thing. That the grand scheme of our redemption does not terminate on me and my walk with the Lord Jesus Christ, but our walk together with Him. That was a vital truth for that splintered group in Corinth who were saying, I am of Apollos, I am of Cephas, I am of Paul, I am of this man, or I am of that man. It was a vital truth that they should understand that their salvation and the whole scheme of redemption didn't have anything to do. They, God is the one who is raising up the temple. God is the one who is constructing the church. It has nothing to do with my personal preferences at all. It's His temple. And that was vital for these believers. And I would say that it's equally as important for us today as so much emphasis, so much emphasis is constantly put upon the self. Don't be deceived, brethren. We were talking about that this morning and how that the influences, the ungodly influences of the world can come in upon us and can shake us and can drive us and can shape our worldview and even our view of the church. Don't. Don't. Everything that you hear today is about self-love, self-indulgence, self-care. And it can be easy for us to allow these things to subtly, subtly slip into our understanding of redemption. But remember, not only what Paul says here, but remember what Peter says about believers in a parallel passage to this. 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 5, he calls them living stones. Living stones. That's how he describes our nature. Living stones. What does that mean? Individually, each person in union with Christ is constituted a living stone. Christ is a living stone, Peter says. And so we are living stones in Him, inseparably joined to Him, given life through Him, made to be of His likeness, so that the living stone is making living stones. That's Peter's saying that in 1 Peter chapter 2. But when Peter uses that kind of language, he's not speaking in terms of individual identities. That goes against the entire, the, the entire picture that he's drawing there. As though living stones were thrown about. Christ is redeeming living stones. And he's taking those living stones and he's throwing them about in various places. Separate it from one another, living in detachment and isolation from all the other stones. Is that what Peter is saying in 1 Peter chapter 2? Listen to his words. You also, as living stones, 
are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And the picture that Peter is drawing here through this illustration of being living stones built up as a living, a spiritual house and a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices unto God. That imagery is congruent with and it's essential to what Paul is saying to the Corinthians. And that is that these living stones who are coming to him have been brought corporately into a close and a permanent union with Christ and one another, and they are seen as living stones being built up together as a spiritual house. You can't do that with one stone. You can't do that with one stone. Or listen to the way that Paul puts it, slightly different terms, over in Ephesians chapter 4, but no less of value to what we are talking about. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11, He Himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edification of the body of Christ. Notice that language, for the edification of the body of Christ till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Again, what's implied there is that apart from this edification of the body of Christ, believers won't come to the fullness of the stature of Christ. That's what he's teaching there. That we should be, verse 14, no longer children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting, but speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into Him who is the head, Christ, from whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies according to the effective working by which every part does its share causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. You cannot be what God intends you to be apart from recognizing and being a part of this temple of God. My point is this, that this is the great emphasis of all that we have written in the epistles. The instruction given is given to the church. The instruction given is given to local churches, collectively walking together in fellowship with one another and in fellowship with Christ together. The Christian life is an ecclesial life and it is nothing less than that and that's what Paul is saying here by these this question and by this statement it's a pinnacle really of everything that he's been telling them already he's he's already told them that God has called them into the fellowship of his son He's told them to be of the same mind. He's told them in chapter 1 verse 13 that Christ is not divided. He cannot be. And His people ought not be. 
Because it goes against the very nature of what you've been raised up and united to be in this life. That's one very important point. That we should never so individualize our Christianity and our walk with God that it is somehow disconnected from the local body. Right? Here's another truth. Connected to this that he assumes they know. He says to them, Do you not know that you all are the temple of God? The temple of God. What does that mean? He's saying to them, Not only do you not know that you all are united, and that's a, that's a, you're mutually bound together in Christ, and that is part and parcel to His whole plan of redemption and your salvation. But then He's saying to them that you are the temple of God. This is a high calling. What God has called us to is the highest calling in all the world. It's a high calling, and He signifies that in verse 17 when He says to them, If anyone defiles this temple of God, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, which temple you are. He's saying that so that they might be arrested in the way that they are acting, in the way that they are thinking, and in the way that they are approaching the whole life of the congregation of the church gathered there at Corinth. And he's saying to them, you have a high calling. Do you not know the temple is the place where God predominantly and where God peculiarly makes Himself known on the earth? That's what you are. The predominant place of the peculiar presence of the glory of God. The temple is the epicenter of God's presence on earth and it's the epicenter of God's worship on earth. If you go back into the Old Testament and you just do a survey of the temple and the ways in which the temple is described, you'll find different variations. But we're told in Exodus 20:24 that it's the place where he records his name. Isaiah 60 verse 7 that it is the house of his glory. Psalm 132 verse 7 that it's his footstool. And what all of that means in those descriptive ways of pointing to the temple and describing the temple is that this place, this temple, when the Bible talks about the temple, it talks about it in terms of the place, the place where He communicates His choice, His precious, His most excellent, and His glorious mercies to His people. You see, there's no other place in all the world at this moment Oh, how I hope that you will see and get a sense of this, brethren. I know that we know it, but that we'll have a sense of it. That there is no other place in all the world at this moment where the infinite comes nearer to the finite. There's no other place in all the world at this moment where the Creator comes nearer to the creature. There's no other place in all the world where the majestic comes nearer to the dust than in this temple, His church. We're told in John chapter 1 verse 14 that the Word became flesh 
and it tabernacled among us. And when John says that we beheld His glory, the glory is of the only begotten of the Father, tabernacling among us. When John says that the Word became flesh and tabernacled among us, what he means is that there, divinity and flesh met, and it touched in a uniquely mysterious and glorious way. The God-man. God coming down, condescending, taking man unto Himself, emptying Himself of His reputation, humbling Himself to the point of death, there in the face of the Lord Jesus Christ. John says, we beheld His glory. And that glory was this, God-man, united in one person, the Lord Jesus Christ. God manifesting Himself and making Himself known in a way that the world had never seen before in a uniquely mysterious and glorious way. Paul says, 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16, that without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifested in the flesh. That's our Lord Jesus Christ. But there's another mystery that the Gospels talk about. There's another mystery that Paul often writes about since that first mystery of the Incarnation. And the reason that I use the mystery of the Incarnation is that we might step back because this is our Lord Jesus Christ. Where we see God in the flesh in a most wonderful and clear way that we've never seen Him before. And all knees bow to Him in this great mystery and we worship Him in this great mystery. But that's not the only mystery that is spoken of in the Gospels. Paul says this to the Colossians, Colossians chapter 1 and verse 26. He says that there is a mystery which has been hidden, a mystery which has been hidden from ages and from generations but now has been revealed to His saints. And then he says, To them God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles. And notice what the mystery is, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So not only is there given to us in the New Testament this mystery of the Incarnation where God comes down and takes flesh to Himself and we could say without dispute that that is the nearest that God has ever been to mankind. Without question. But then there's this other mystery that we see unfolding in that Incarnation and in the salvation that has been given to us. And Paul says, is this mystery, wonder of wonders, Christ in you, the hope of glory, the He who is the God-man manifest is now dwelling in you. But notice what this mystery of Christ in you has special reference to. Verse 24 of Colossians 1, I now rejoice in my sufferings for you and fill up in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ for the sake of His body, which is the church. The church. So that when Paul says there's another mystery, 
And it's the mystery of Christ, the God-man in you. He says it with specific reference to the church. Or notice how Paul puts it in Ephesians chapter 2. Having been, verse 20, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ Himself being the chief cornerstone in whom the whole building, being fitted together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. Here's my point. He in whom heaven and earth divinity and humanity were forever melded together into one eternal union. Now dwells, the Bible tells us, within His people, within us. And by that indwelling of His life within us, He raises us from the dead. He raises us from the dust. And in an even more captivating and singularly matchless way, He comes near with His presence, in the midst of His gathered body. And when Paul uses this language in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, you are the temple of God, he actually is using a very specific term, which would indicate not merely the edifice or the outward structure of a temple, but the heart of it, the sanctuary, the holy of holies. So when he says, you, church, are the temple of God, what he's saying is that the nature of our corporate identity is that of a living spiritual sanctuary where God is present and true worship is offered. A spiritual house, a holy habitation of God. That's the church. And it's fundamental to our identity. There's no other entity on earth like this where God walks, where God dwells among His people. And Paul says to these Corinthians, and I say, brethren, to you, do you not know? And I hope in asking the question you shake your head affirmatively, yes, we do know, but do you know? When you walk through those doors... And gather together in this place. And the scripture is read. And prayers are lifted up. And songs are sung. And the word of God is open and exposited before you. Do you know that it's in this place that God dwells? Do you know when you walk through those doors that what you're coming into is holy ground? Do you think of it in those terms? Do you realize that there is no other entity on the face of planet earth that comes close to what you are when you come together as Christ's gathered body? He is here. God of all gods, King of all kings, Lord of all lords, in the midst of His temple. How vital it is that we see this. How vital it is that we remember this. How vital it is that we stir up the embers within us, that we should be awakened to this and understand the gravity of it. Still another truth, and lastly, that is central to what Paul assumes they know, is that the Spirit of God dwells in them. Do you not know 
that you are the temple of God and the Spirit of God dwells in you and therefore you cannot be what you are meant to be apart from the Spirit. This I think is very vital for us. As John Calvin notes on this passage, he says these words indicate the reason why they are the temple of God. When he says you are the temple of God and the Spirit of God dwells in you, Calvin says it indicates the reason that you are the temple of God. Hence, he says that word and conjunction must be understood as meaning because... And so he interprets the verse this way. For this reason, says he, are you the temple of God because God dwells in you by His Spirit. However you take that word and, whether it should be interpreted and or because, it's plain to see that the Spirit is given a special designation in all this indicating the vital necessity of His presence within the church, if indeed it is to be a true church. Or state it negatively, let me put it this way, without the Spirit there simply is no church. Without the Spirit of God there simply is no true church. You can do everything that you want to do, but if God is... Not present by His Spirit, there is no true church. It's the operations of the Spirit of God alone that makes those who are joined together to be what they ought to be, to do what they ought to do, and to know and to experience the presence of God in their midst. That's why Paul prays the way that he prays in Ephesians chapter 3, that we might be strengthened with might in our inner man by the Spirit, so that Christ might dwell in our hearts through faith, so that we might know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, so that we might be filled with all the fullness of God. And then he goes on to say, and God might get glory in His church. Well, brethren, He won't get glory in His church apart from the power and the presence, the strengthening presence of the Spirit of God. It was the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit that substantially marked the early church. It's the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit that has been the secret of the success of the true church in every consequent generation. And it's the power and the presence of the Spirit that is the secret and the success of every true church today. And I say this is indispensably vital. This is what sets you apart. And I fear, brethren, that many so-called churches today have Ichabod written over them. the glory of God departing from them. And they don't even know that the glory and the power of God departed from them a long time ago. I'm fearful that there are many brick and mortar buildings with the name church attached to them that have over above them, if they could have eyes to see, Ichabod. 
so much of the emphasis today lies upon what man can do. So much of the emphasis today lies upon what programs man can construct. What humor man can bring to the pulpit. What charisma man can bring to the pulpit. What things man can do to get people interested. And not upon what must be done alone by the Spirit of God. These Corinthians with so much emphasis on men stood in danger of that very thing. It's clear from the Apostle's language in the first several chapters, he emphasizes this very line of reasoning again and again. Chapter 1, verse 17, he says of his own ministry, My speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith should not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Further, he goes on to say that it's by the Spirit alone that they're taught the things of God, and that they're given the mind of Christ. In 1 Corinthians 2, verses 9-16, through Who does this? Man? Our best plans? Our best strategies? Our careful execution? I'm not saying that we shouldn't think about those things. But it's clear from this text that the temple of God can only be the temple of God by the indwelling presence of the Spirit of God. How will we grow as a church in our understanding? How will we grow as a church in our graces? How will we grow in our church being awakened and stirred up? How will we grow as a church for our love for the Lord Jesus Christ? How will we grow in our witness with regard to the Lord Jesus Christ? Uh, Sure, it's faithful expositors of God's Word. Yes. Yes. But brethren, I say this to you with the utmost seriousness with the utmost earnestness, I can tell you that without the accompanying blessing and power of the Spirit, you may have 10, 20, 100 well-equipped men and never truly grow in the grace and the knowledge of Christ. That's the text. Do you not know that you are the temple of God? And as Calvin would put it, because... The Spirit of God dwells in you. That's what makes you to be what you are. And in this text, he comes primarily to this whole matter of worship. He comes primarily to this whole matter of communion with God. And what does he say? You are the temple of God. And that singularly and distinctly because of God's Spirit dwelling in you. How is it that any of Christ's churches can offer up those spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God. Well, Peter tells us it's by Christ that we offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God. The writer of Hebrews, Hebrews 13, we looked at it not too long ago, tells us that it's by Christ that we offer up those spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God. And that's true, positionally. But Christ Himself says that it's by the Spirit of God alone that we're able to do this. That God is seeking those who will worship Him in spirit and in truth. And all true worship is worship not just in truth, but worship in spirit. 
Or notice in closing what Paul says to these Ephesian believers. I've always found this a very interesting text. Ephesians chapter 5. He says to them, verse 18, Do not be drunk with wine, which is dissipation. But be, and he, the language in the original is, be being filled with the Spirit. And then, by the very con- gr- grammatical construction there, everything that follows, all the instruction that Paul gives following that statement, is directly attached to what he says about be being filled with the Spirit. And he annexes to that instruction, worship. Listen, be being filled with the Spirit, verse 18, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another in the fear of God. The construction of the grammar there is such that it makes it impossible to do the one without the first. It makes it impossible to truly give thanks to God. It makes it impossible to truly speak to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs and make melody in our hearts. It makes it impossible for us to do all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and impossible for us to truly submit to one another in the fear of God apart from being filled with the Spirit. How will you sing to the Lord? How will you truly give thanks to Him? How will you sweetly submit to one another? Only by the Spirit. His presence and His power are what makes you to be the temple of God. Not in name only, but in truth and in practice. And when Paul says this to the Corinthians, he says it not only that they might know that they are instricably interconnected, interdependent with one another. And not only that they might know that they have this high calling, that the, the, the gathered church is the temple of God, but that they might know that there is no way, no way, No humanly possible way for them to ever be what God has called them to be apart from a hearty dependence upon the Spirit. Brethren, these things are asked that they might be brought back to our remembrance. They're asked so that we might never forget them. And they're asked so that they might be a controlling factor in our life together. Do you not know? Yes. We do know it. Then fix it permanently upon your thinking. And let it be the driving force of our life together in Christ. That every time we walk through those doors... No, even before we walk through those doors, every time we begin to think about what it is that we are, who it is that we are, what it is that we come to do, 
that our minds might run back to this, that we are the temple of God and the Spirit of God dwells in us. And oh, how we need Him that we might rise to the heights of being that which He has called us to be, and that we might forever be that which He has called us to be, and that we might know that we stand upon holy ground. For those outside of Christ, I simply say this. The place on which you stand is holy ground. God Himself is present. The God who made you. The God who causes your heart to beat. The God who fills your lungs with air. The God that you will stand before on the day of judgment and give an account of everything that you've done in the body. He's here. You stand on holy ground. And Christ is presented unto your souls as He alone who can save you from your sin. And the Spirit Himself pleads with you, Come. The Spirit and the Bride say, Come. He who thirsts, let him come. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. Let's pray. Lord, we would first ask of you this, af- this afternoon that, Lord, you would forgive us. Like these Corinthians, it's very easy for us to be drawn away and to be distracted and to forget who we are in Christ. To forget this high calling and this dignity that you have put upon us, not merely as individuals, but as a collective body of the Lord Jesus Christ, that we would be called the temple of God, that we would be called living stones, that we would be called a holy priesthood, a spiritual house, wherein we are called to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to you through our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, we would ask that you would forgive us for so many days in which we have pursued this life together in our own strength. Forgetting that it is only by the power, the accompanying power and help of the Holy Spirit that we can be and can do anything that is pleasing in your sight. Lord, we would ask that in the remembrance of these things, that like a well-fastened peg in the depths of our conscience, that you would drive it into our memory. That, Lord, we would always be praying for your church. That we would be coming with expectation to your church. That we would remember that we're coming to meet with God. That there is no other place on earth that presents your glory so manifestly than in this place. That we would remember, Lord, that we need you by your Spirit. God, we pray that you would help us and that you would preserve us, that we might truly glorify you in this generation and in that which is to come in this church. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.